The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. out loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Max Jeffrey reads his letter from Abu Dhabi where he visited the International Defence Exhibition. Emily Rhodes tells us about the tyranny of World Book Day for parents and Daisy Dunn reads her arts lead on the mysterious world of the Minoans. Up first, Max Jeffrey. Yalla yalla yalla, shouts a Saudi man. There are arms dealers, fixers, military men and gun geeks, tanks, assault rifles, mortars and drones. Jets do aerobatics overhead and a band plays Maroon 5. A Chinese robot dog bangs into delegates. Welcome to the International Defence Exhibition in the United Arab Emirates. Business is booming. On the conference floor, Eric Prince is talking to the Emirati president, Mohammed bin Zayed. People are taking photos of MBZ, who smiles out from a dark robe and aviator sunglasses, but no one seems to recognise Prince. He's an ex-Navy SEAL who sold mercenaries to the Americans in Iraq, trained Somalis to fight pirates in the Gulf of Aden, and allegedly broke arms trafficking laws, shipping weaponised agricultural planes to Libya. After some of his mercenaries killed 17 Iraqi civilians in 2007, he left America for the UAE. He became friends with MBZ, they fell out, and now they're close again. Prince makes deals happen. He's valuable. Each exhibitor at the fair has a stand with their weapons on display. Guns are mounted to counters like iPads in John Lewis. You can pick them up, but they're attached to a thin wire that ties them down. People yank back the bolt and pull the trigger, over and over. There are shooting ranges outside the conference for buyers to try the guns properly. Small companies do business at the back of their stand, with a table, chairs and a bowl of mints. Big companies have two floors of private meeting rooms and some have a buffet. Most of the salesmen are useless. A hapless pair from Norinco, a Chinese defence company, say they've never heard of a microchip, and a man from Turkey can't remember who his customers are. I just sell it. I don't ask these questions. Three salesmen from a British company are sitting around. One stands up and bends over to pick something up. Another slaps his bottom. Everyone laughs. At one point, Nicola Bandini, the Italian CEO of Lahab Light Ammunition, an Emirati firm, snaps at his incompetent colleagues who are having trouble transporting weapons. I will drive the guns to the airport in my car. He hits the back of one hand into the palm of the other. The team look forlorn. Some business manages to get past these salesmen. Everyone wants 155mm howitzers and artillery munition. Countries have given their stockpiles away to Ukraine and need to top them up again. A Czech manufacturer says they can't make them fast enough. Manufacturers from companies that are neutral in the war are profiting too. The Bulgarians won't sell directly to Ukraine because their government is against it so they sell to Ukraine's allies, who can do what they want with the weapons. A South Korean manufacturer sells 155s and munitions that are compatible with the Western tanks in Ukraine. Customers can send artillery brought somewhere else to Ukraine and top up their own stockpiles from South Korea. Russian companies are exhibiting in a small pavilion away from the conference hall. Turkish Bayraktar drones and an American Patriot missile system are on display nearby. Patriots were first used in Iraq to take out Saddam Hussein's Soviet Scud missiles, Russia replaced Scuds with Iskander ballistic missiles and has used the Iskanders in Ukraine. The US has promised Ukraine a Patriot system to shoot them down. 
We haven't had any confrontation. We just give each other weird looks, says an American soldier standing by the Patriot. A Ukrainian exhibitor says their embassy paid to make sure the Russians were out of the way, but still the Russian stand is busy. Algerian generals are briefed about S-400 surface-to-air systems. Chinese naval officers inspect Model T-90 tanks, and everyone else goes mad for Kalashnikovs. AK-12s, AK-19s, AK-15s, AK-anythings. They pose for photos and grim wildly. How much? asks a Bangladeshi military man in view of everyone, pointing at a plastic model of an Ilyushin transport plane. $150 million, says the salesman. The Bangladeshi man is Waka Uzzaman, a lieutenant general. He says Russia makes very good hardware, and he doesn't want the Bangladeshi military to be reliant on one country for its equipment. Maintaining it all is difficult, and some pieces of equipment aren't compatible with others, but he thinks it's the best option for Bangladesh. A Pakistani man wearing Gucci sunglasses and carrying an AK-12 introduces himself in the Russian pavilion. He's wearing a G-Shock watch and looks like a fool. He figures out I'm a journalist and says I should interview him. He says he's 25, called Mohammed, and sells weapons to special forces across the world. He wants to introduce me to his friends. They're on a Pakistani naval ship moored at the marina. On deck, we sit on white canvas armchairs that are stained with muck and eat sorted peanuts from a half-finished packet. There are two helicopter pilots and someone from the UAE's Ministry of Defence. Mohammed tries to get involved in the conversation, but they're not interested. They're not his friends. When we leave the boat, Mohammed says he lives in one of the biggest mansions in Dubai. A penthouse. He says he could throw a party in my honour if I want. He's making gold guns for politicians. He has a friend who's a Prime Minister. He'll give one to him. I don't know if I believe him. In the end, £5 billion worth of deals were signed at the arms fair. War is good news around here. These guys keep us safe apparently. That was Max Jeffrey. Next, Emily Rhodes. Dear parents, a reminder that we are dressing up for World Book Day. Don't forget, your child should come to school in costume as their favourite character tomorrow. It's the email every parent dreads receiving, or one of them anyway. It tends to be opened at eight o'clock the evening before World Book Day to be met with feelings of exasperation, desperation and guilt. How is it that the charity World Book Day, founded in UNESCO in 1995 with the laudable mission to promote reading for pleasure, has morphed into yet another occasion for parents to buy stuff? An unscientific survey of parents I know revealed that almost all of them are too busy and or too broke to see World Book Day costumes as anything other than the last thing they need. Mothers desperately draw Harry Potter scars on their son's foreheads or struggle to create Pippi Longstocking plaits. There's a hasty purchasing of polyester gangster granny or Mary Poppins costumes and then the guilt of unnecessary waste. The only thing any of this imparts to a child is that books mean trouble. Dressing up is, in fact, the antithesis to reading for pleasure. When your nose is in a book, your eyes are set on a new horizon. It isn't so much that you are imagining Oliver Twist asking for more, Harry Potter seeking horcruxes, or Lyra conversing with her demon. When you are truly reading for pleasure, you are doing these things yourself. You somehow enter the world of a book. Good books enable you to feel like their characters. Looking like them is a red herring. It shouldn't be a surprise that the protagonists of many great children's books tend to be somewhat nondescript in appearance. Johanna Spirey tells us of Heidi that it was difficult to see what she was like as she's wearing so many clothes on her way to her grandfather. 
All we know on meeting C.S. Lewis's Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy is that they've been sent away from wartime London because of the air raids. Chris Riddle introduces us to Otterline by telling us what she likes, splashing in puddles, brushing Mr Munro's hair, solving tricky problems and working out clever plans, not what she looks like. No author wants their reader to focus on the distinguishing physical traits of a character at the expense of their personality. I think of Hermione Granger and I think of someone who is bright, bookish, patient and kind to her friends. I don't think about her bushy brown hair and rather large front teeth. When my eight-year-old daughter was obsessed with Pippi Longstocking, she would frequently collapse with giggles at Pippi's anecdotes, admire her tomboyish adventures and even began sleeping the wrong way round in her bed a la Pippi, with her feet on the pillow and her head underneath the covers. In our many happy conversations about this new force of joy in her life, she didn't once mention Pippi's pigtails. Even worse than the message of needing to imitate a character's appearance in order to be like them is its flip side. If you go dressed as yourself, you are, well, nobody. Each year, in the run-up to World Book Day, the Twitterverse resounds with the supposedly ingenious WBD trick of dressing your child in their normal clothes and telling them they're a muggle. A muggle, in case you're not familiar with Harry Potter, is a generic term for anyone who isn't a wizard. In doing this, you are telling your kid that because they are wearing their own clothes, they exist on the fringe of a story, nameless and so boring as to not be part of the adventure. Incidentally, you are also conveying that they have a smart-ass parent. Telling your child first that they embody a character by mimicking their appearance and then that their own potential is limited by their outfit is such a bad message that it's ludicrous. Thankfully, World Book Day does not begin and end with a costume. There is much more that the charity offers, not least the £1 book tokens, which enable every child to choose and buy their own special book. It's a day of revelling in the pleasure of reading, a pleasure which is expansive, magical and life-changing. It's a world away from dressing up. That was Emily Rhodes. And finally, Daisy Dunn. Labyrinth, Knossos, Myth and Reality at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, does not take the idea of a labyrinth too literally. It does not lead you through galleries to dead ends, nor are you left searching, like Theseus, for a ball of thread to find your way out again. The real enigma of the exhibition revolves around the Bronze Age civilization at its heart. The Minoans, who occupied Crete between about 3000 and 1100 BC, remain some of the most mystifying people ever to have been stumbled upon in modern times. It is uncertain where they came from, what they believed, how they were governed, and why they chose to paint things the colours they did in their dynamic works of art. They traded widely, including with Egypt, but their direction of cultural influence is not always clear. When I put it to Dr Andrew Shapland, curator of the exhibition, that the Minoans threw up more questions than answers, He assures me that bewilderment is often the prevailing emotion among scholars of the period as well. Not even their principal writing script, Linear A, has been deciphered fully. The material the Minoans left behind inspires deep, obsessive wonder. Figures of bare-breasted women with snakes writhing around their arms and elaborate headpieces accompany pots painted with massive octopuses and frescoes filled with blue monkeys, 
crocuses and long-haired, red-skinned men. Many of the paintings were heavily restored in the early 20th century, with heads and sometimes entire figures recreated controversially from scratch. Most were copied from more complete examples, but it has been observed that in some instances, the women look peculiarly modern. One of the best-preserved original panels shows a lithe man with his face still intact and full of life, his neck extended as he leans back upon himself, waist cinched, arms akimbo. Few subjects are as prevalent in Minoan art as the bull, which features on everything from drinking vessels to wall crenellations. The Minoans evidently believed that bulls possessed some potency. By contrast, the inhabitants of classical Greece would routinely offer up their livestock to the gods without revering them to such a degree. Some of the most striking Minoan pieces show men leaping over bulls. The exhibition presents a particularly thrilling interpretation of the act, the Tariada fresco, a restored painting of a man catapulting himself over the torso of a very long-bodied bull, while two further figures participate in the feat from either end of the animal. One holds the bull's horns, while the other prepares to aid the acrobat in his dismount. Why they had this obsession with bull acrobatics is yet another mystery. Bulls became synonymous with Crete, thanks in part to the myth of the Minotaur. Pasiphae, queen consort of the island, was said to have had sex with a bull by hiding inside a wooden cow after Poseidon made her fall in love with the animal. She commissioned the craftsman Daedalus to carve a carapace especially. The mechanics of what followed were wisely left to the imagination, but the product of the liaison, the Minotaur, quickly became infamous. Pasiphae's husband, King Minos, ordered Daedalus to construct a labyrinth around the bullman at Knossos, where the beast feasted on teenagers sent to him from Athens. The rediscovery of the site of Knossos on Crete in the late 19th century sparked a romantic search for remains of the labyrinth. The archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans might not have been so impressionable as to believe that the hybrid creature existed, but the sight of a palatial complex emerging from the soil convinced him that he was standing upon the very threshold of Minos, the cockolded king of legend. Labyrinths were real. They had appeared on ancient coins and works of art for thousands of years. And according to Herodotus, one was built just outside the splendidly named Crocodilopolis, south of Cairo, near Fayum in Egypt. It allegedly contained 3,000 chambers, half of them subterranean, and was predictably nightmarish to navigate. The foundations of a building of a similar description have been found in the region and identified as part of the intricate mortuary temple of Amenemat III, a pharaoh of the 12th dynasty. What Evans found in Crete was a palace that resembled a labyrinth. The ground plan of the second palace at Knossos, a site first discovered by the Greek amateur archaeologist and businessman Minos Kalakarinos, is as twisting and convoluted as any monster's lair. Workshops, storage rooms and private living quarters sprout from gymnasium-like courts and seemingly infinite passageways. While it is unlikely that the Minoans drew a direct connection between their palaces and the concept of a labyrinth, the earliest representation of a Cretan labyrinth so far discovered is square, and the turnings of the square palace echo the corridors on it. This plan, appearing on the back of a writing tablet dated to about 1200 BC and discovered on mainland Greece, shows a single path to the centre with layers to meander through. 
coins minted from the 5th century BC, when the Minotaur myth was famous throughout Greece, often replicated the square design. The Minotaur itself was, unsurprisingly, more elusive than the labyrinth. It is seldom observed that the bulls depicted in Minoan artworks tend to be very different from the beasts imagined by later artists. There is nothing Minotaur-like about them. Compare the bull in the Tariada fresco with the formidable Roman-era marble sculpture that confronts you upon entering the exhibition, and you could almost call the former cute. Where Greek vase painters, Roman sculptors and Picasso in his famous series exploited the raw violence of the Minotaur, the Minoans seem to have recognised the bull's propensity for taming and being tamed. There is nothing to say that young Minoan men were not taught to master bulls and leap over them as a means of mastering themselves. From what we know, the closest the real-life Minoans came to reenacting the deeds of Theseus, who arrived from Athens to slaughter the Minotaur with help from Ariadne, Pacifi's daughter, was in their performance of religious sacrifice. There is evidence of the ritual killing of bulls on Crete, and also, more rarely yet grotesquely, of humans, including children. The latter was confirmed by the discovery of healthy juvenile bones bearing cut marks. Some believe that human sacrifices were carried out to ward off natural disasters, such as earthquakes. Minoan Crete was once associated with the utopian kingdom of Atlantis, which Plato described as flourishing and then sinking, inspiring a thousand fruitless quests for its whereabouts. The Ashmolean exhibition sensibly stopped short of exploring that myth in favour of revelling in the vibrancy, colour and wonderful weirdness of Minoan life. Perhaps the most astonishing thing about the Minoans is that we know anything about them at all, given that they're a millennium older than Homer, the earliest Western literary source. The story of how they came to be may be as remote as the birth of the Minotaur, but they cut a unique and unerring path as they painted and sculpted the world as they saw it. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed that, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join me again next week.